Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary, narrative, or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, we're sharing our year in review episode with you, where we take a look back at highlights from 2020 on You Can't Make This Up. Now, I don't need to tell you the kind of changes 2020 brought for most of us. But I will say is that for me, streaming TV remained a constant in my life as a much-needed means of escape during quarantine. And Netflix continued throughout the entire year to premiere story after story that helped me stay engaged and stay sane. Taking stock of the platform's true crime offerings, criminal justice fans like me, well, we weren't disappointed. Netflix filmmakers and documentarians consistently delivered on original content that both intrigued and surprised. Above all, they forced viewers to take a second look at crimes that we thought we knew all about from news reports and pop culture. Take the Italian mafia, for example. As someone from New York who grew up on Long Island in the 80s, I have become extremely fatigued with the many sensational, highly acclaimed art and film projects that glorify the mob. We've known these stories from films like The Godfather and Goodfellas and The Departed and heard them mostly from the point of view of incredibly charming and charismatic wise guys that often sound more like Joe Pesci than Joe Pesci himself. We party constantly. All the gangsters used. They'll tell you they never did, but they did. Same, nobody cheated on their wives, but everybody cheated on their wives. Nobody drank champagne, we drank champagne day and night. That's why I was so delighted about the premiere of Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. This was billed as the biggest organized crime investigation ever. We were gonna bug the Mafia. We were going to hear them on the tapes with our very own ears. Listen to me. I'm separate. the fuck you hit. What I find so compelling about this series were actually the FBI agents and how interesting and colorful their side of the story is. They retold some of the craziest moments in their investigations that ultimately led to the downfall of the five most powerful mob families in American history. We met agents like the cooler-than-cool Joe Cantamesa, who successfully planted a wiretap in the kitchen of Paul Castellano, a.k.a. the boss of bosses, godfather of the Gambino crime family. Joe is the kind of character whose stories are more exciting than fiction. He's the kind of person for whom an entire series could be made about his undercover exploits. A black bag man was an agent who had a skill set for planting a concealed microphone. We're getting through a, a locked door, and that's basically what was in the black bag of tricks. Many people don't operate in a covert world effectively. They don't blend. The most successful agents fit sort of my profile. Maybe I was a bad kid growing up. Maybe I learned how to hide and learned how to blend and so on and so forth.
Trial by Media is another must-see documentary that dropped last year. It's a series about the good and the bad in reporting big national-level trials, how the media can illuminate truth but also distort it. King Richard is one of six different high-profile stories covered in the documentary series. It's about Richard Scrushy, a very wealthy healthcare executive in the Deep South. He was alleged to be involved in financial fraud. HealthSouth CEO Richard Scrushy was indicted on she built a Birmingham-based HealthSouth into a Fortune 500. Scrushy was indicted on charges he orchestrated one of the biggest accounts. Then, with the help of his lawyers, Richard managed to create a persona for himself before the jury, both inside the courtroom and in the larger media environment. He basically reinvented himself as this Montgomery, Alabama civil rights activist. And that made him look to be a far more sympathetic figure than he probably deserved to be. The white community hated him for the most part, but the black community was neutral. And so I told Richard, that community may run to you when you're in trouble and not run from you. And it may make a difference in your life and the outcome of this circumstance. And he he was quick to pick up on that lesson. The story by itself is completely surprising, but what's especially compelling are Richard's two defense lawyers. They're interviewed at length in the documentary. They're just so hilariously transparent and cynical in the way they talked about what was really going on in the background, like in this next clip. Here's Jim Parkman, one of Richard's attorneys, dissecting his opening statement for the trial jurors. And I said, wow, folks. Did you hear all this stuff that this government said in this case? Good gracious, alive. It doesn't sound like we stand much of a chance. Stop right there. So now I'm playing to that role of we're the underdog. And because everybody likes an underdog. Nobody likes the New England Patriots. So now I've given them that. We don't have much of a chance, except for something my grandmama used to tell me when I was growing up as a young boy. Remember this, grandson. No matter how thin they make a pancake, it still has two sides to it. So what I'd like to do is you've just heard the side from the government. What I want you to do is let's flip that pancake over, okay, and let's cook the other side. You would be surprised how many jurors you see nodding going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did your grandma really say that about the pancake? Uh, no. I made that up years ago. She could have, but she didn't. Now, turning to a hugely important topic that's been given much more deserved attention in 2020 than ever before. Sexual assault and abuse is covered with so much compassion in the docuseries Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. Epstein was a pedophile billionaire with powerful connections. He abused countless numbers of young women and girls for decades with his obscene wealth and a network of co-conspirators. What's so exceptional about this series is that it centers around the survivors, the women who are still pursuing Epstein's enablers like Ghislaine Maxwell. They bravely came forward to break the silence around their painful experiences. One of these survivors is Michelle Licata. In this clip, she talks about what she wanted to say to Jeffrey after his arrest in 2019 and before his mysterious death in a Manhattan jail soon after. I want him to to look at me, and I wanted to be like, do you remember me? 
Do you remember my face? Do you remember anything about me? Of course you don't remember me because there was hundreds like me. You don't remember me, but uh, I'll remember you for the rest of my life. That's something that I have to remember. So I want you to take a good look at my face right now. And I want you to remember the people that are going to put you in prison for the rest of your life. In 2020, I was really lucky to have the opportunity to speak with filmmakers involved in all three of these docuseries and many more. I spoke with the director and producer of the docuseries, How to Fix a Drug Scandal, Erin Lee Carr. The four-part series centers on a former chemist named Sonia Farrick. She worked for Massachusetts State Drug Testing Labs, and for nearly a decade, Sonia handled evidence in tens of thousands of cases against people accused of drug possession and trafficking while she was under the influence. My habit got bad enough in the mid and later stages of 2012 where I was taking cocaine from cases that I'd analyzed, and instead of using it as cocaine, I would use that cocaine to make crack for myself. What struck me most talking with Erin was the level of empathy she brought to the project and what it means for her personally to show viewers how gray this seemingly black and white case really is. I began our conversation by asking her why she felt it was important to turn Sonia's story into a documentary. You know, I think that there's been a a tendency in my work to really um, move towards tabloid, move towards these big sort of national cases. Um, But, you know, as somebody that works in the criminal justice space, I, you know, I had kind of a a sit down or a talk with myself and said, um, am I putting work out into the world that is meaningful? Am I trying to um, change or um, be a part of national conversations? You know, it's about wrongful convictions and sort of what is it like when the system does not protect you? And so this was, you know, a pretty targeted, direct sort of way that I wanted to get into a criminal justice space that had a lot of lasting implications. And the sort of the cherry on the top for me specifically is it's really a story about drug addiction. And I have been you know, really lucky and really fortunate to be out about my sobriety. I'm somebody whose my life was saved by sobriety. I feel so lucky um, to be a part of that club. Um, But I also kind of understand what addiction looks like. And so really being a part of discussions surrounding empathic portraits of addiction. She's so candid, both in the footage you have of her on the stand and also in her interviews talking about that moment where she knew she crossed the Rubicon. One day, I just decided to try a little bit. I was alone. People had gone out to lunch. It was in liquid form, so I used a pipette. It gave me the desired effects. It gave me energy. I felt amazing. I didn't wish it, but it gave me the pep I was looking for. Can you just talk about that, you know, as somebody who talks about your sobriety, I'm hoping hoping you're comfortable just sort of talking about what it was like to capture that on film. Somebody like explicitly being able to pinpoint the very moment where they made a choice and their life changed forever and really altered the course of the lives of thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, well said. It it, it was it's pretty incredible. So um, in 2015, there um, Sonia sat for something called the grand jury and 
she was given immunity and said, you know, if you tell the whole story. And so we had these like page hundreds of pages where basically it was a confession. And that's what really drew me to this story. Um, and of course, that there's no there's no recordings of that because it's a grand jury. It's sealed. And so I was left as this filmmaker, like, what do I do how do I bring this material alive? And so I ended up, we ended up, um, you know, which is pretty in vogue now, but we ended up recreating it and oh. uh, really, uh, you know, thinking about who Sonia was and what she was doing when she did that. And so I think that it, it's going, it's going into the discussion surrounding how and why do people start these things? Uh, because we know that it can only end poorly. Um, and then, you know, getting up to the point where, you know, she goes from liquid meth to fentermine to cocaine to crack cocaine. And yeah, I mean, it's that's just sort of an unbelievable part of it. One of the things that makes it so striking as that story is unspooling all the things that she tried and then did. And she gets to the point where she's actually, you know, cooking crack rocks in the office at her job. Um, uh, one of the reasons that really hits home as a viewer, especially for me, is because you also have access and you interview her family members, her mother and sister. Some of these details they weren't privy to um, for a long time, but then they really share what their experiences learning this about their loved one. And uh, that's really affecting. I'm wondering what it was like to talk with them. Yeah, I think that it's so important. And I have so much gratitude towards um, Sonia's family for for not just doing off the records, but sitting down with me and participating. Um, they, they felt that they were incredibly maligned by the media, specifically in terms of who Sonia was, this sort of one-dimensional portrait. So they were very distrustful and it took a lot of sort of talking it through. And I think it really helped um, that I am a sober person, that I am an out sober person. Uh, and that I, you know, I really said that this is not going to be that sort of same story. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it was so sad, if that makes sense, like to sit here, you know, with her mother and her mother just, you know, Linda kind of, felt mystified. Like, how did we get here? I tried to do my best. Um, you know, she's a really, you know, Sonia was a really good kid. She played football. And there was just this, um, this sort of aura of disbelief and surrealism that permeated the entire discussion. I it just, it, it's all, all of my stuff is always about the ripple effects. What does, what happens when one crime takes place and how many people does it affect? And, you know, how to fix a drug scandal is the epitome of that because it's not just the people at the wrongful uh, end of the convictions, but it's, it's the family members. It's every single person who touched this story that sort of deal with it on a daily basis. And this is a, you know, it's a story that was largely forgotten. I think in the Trump bubble, you know, there are these crazy stories that go viral and this there was some reason why this um, story faded from the sort of the national conversation and that's why I love documentaries like I've taken a look at all of your other episodes and there's so many crime cases that it's so good to sort of explore and like that's why I'm so lucky to be working because yes that there's journalism and I feel so grateful that there's journalism but there's also these like um, many years later deconstructing sort of what happened here because there are real villains a part of this case that have largely mm -hmm. gotten away with it and you know oh, yeah. I always want to be careful about sort of what I say but um, yeah I mean it's uh, you know I wanted to hold power to account. Well Erin Lee Carr the documentary is How to Fix a Drug Scandal. I found it engrossing 
fascinating. I really think it's a must watch. It was right in my wheelhouse. I think it will be in a lot of people's wheelhouses. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. It's a deep joy and I'm proud of it. And I really love talking about it. And thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. What also made last year an especially exciting one for true crime fans was the highly anticipated return of a series that's a pioneer in the genre. You hear that music? Of course, I'm talking about the return of Unsolved Mysteries, the first television series to call on viewers for clues to help solve real-life mysteries. Because of tips from viewers of the show's first iteration, law enforcement has solved more than 260 cold cases. No Ride Home is the fourth episode from the show's return about the death of 23-year-old Alonzo Brooks. In 2004, Alonzo never returned home after attending a party at a farmhouse in rural Kansas. His body was found a month later, and the manner and cause of his death remains unknown to this day. It's rumored that locals know what happened to Alonzo, but nobody's talking. This was tragic for our family. I want answers now. It's been 15 years. It's too long. That town still hasn't said anything. And the people and the kids don't say shit. And I still wonder why. I spoke with director Marcus A. Clark, who was one of our most compassionate and moving guests last year. We talked about what it was like for him to work on this project in a small rural town where Alonzo very likely died as the result of a racial hate crime. In this excerpt from our longer discussion, I asked Marcus why he thinks investigators, including the FBI, still don't know what happened to Alonzo, even though the last place Alonzo was seen alive was at a party with dozens and dozens of people in attendance. How is there not someone, just one person, who would be willing to share some useful information after all this time? Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, you know, I, I firmly believe that someone knows, um, I think more than you know, more than someone, I think people know. Um, and I think that's another really big concern in in this case. How has this been able to be kept so silent without any, you know, legitimate leads um, or clues or tips or, you know, people coming forward to give any sort of information? So it begs the question, how many people were involved? How many people did actually witness this? And then what transpired thereafter? You know, I can only speculate whether or not Somebody was told not to speak or perhaps persuaded not to talk. I'm not really sure, but you have to ask all those questions when something like this happens at a party where seemingly people were there in a town where there's not that many residents. You know, the population is, is relatively low and there's all these kids there. So, you know, that's one layer. Uh, Alonzo was 23 when this happened. And so from what we have kind of dug up, the people at the party, the kids at the party were, you know, anywhere between the ages of 18 and um, 23, 25, let's say. But we're, we're talking about teenagers and, and young adults. And so, you know, fear could play into it. Intimidation could play into it. I'm not sure. But I know that, you know, it's been a real impasse that the information coming out of that area um, hasn't been more fluid. I'll also say that I think as we talk about race playing a role, Alonzo was 45 minutes to an hour away from where he lives. And so he's an outsider in a, in a very tight-knit 
and small community. And so, you know, as we've seen with some of these other cases with African-Americans trying to find justice for atrocities, when you're an outsider, it further complicates, you know, that process and that mission. In my opinion, you have to have a strong incentive to want to solve uh, a case mm-hmm. like this and want to investigate and ask the tough questions and, you know, turn over stones all around the place, regardless of people's stature or people, what people might think. It's, you know, there's a, it's tougher for outsiders to, to um, get the same type of justice that, that they deserve. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I live in a small town. Uh, my husband and I have actually wrote one of the true crime books we wrote was about a case that the the killer lived in the town we lived in. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced this a lot. It's that, you know, with this dynamic, and I'm not from here originally, so even though I've lived here 20 years, I'm seen as an outsider. But then also there's the sense of, A, you know, I live here. I have to go to the market here. I'm going to see these people all the time, and then I'll forever be the person who said something. But there's also a sense, and I don't think people can really understate this, especially with young people, about wanting to not get involved, wanting to run from the prospect of doing something that's hard that then Mm -hmm. will then define their life for the next year or uh, two or three if there's a trial, if there's an ongoing police investigation. And then you add the element into it that this place lay seen that no one in your episode seems to dispute is a racist place. I'm curious, did you go there? Did you spend time there? And if so, what was it like? I did spend time there for this episode, a uh, considerable amount of time in Lacine. Um, you know, for me, it was, a, it was a difficult experience, to say the least. You know, I'm an African-American male um, from Brooklyn, New York, originally born and raised. Uh, you know, Lacine, Kansas is a very different experience for me. I was very uncomfortable the entire time I was there, just to be completely honest with you. Um, you know, I took precautions. We took precautions as a production to make sure, you know, things were looked after and, and safety was always an issue. But uh, I, I did. I felt incredibly uncomfortable. It, it, it's uh, hard to put your finger on, but you can feel it. You can feel the eyes. You can feel uh, people don't want you there. You can feel, you know, a certain level of disdain in the air, uh, in the temperature when you're talking to people there. Um, I did not feel welcome. Uh, that was very clear to me. Uh, I, I, you know, had to watch my back considerably while I was there. And, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, I think America is coming to an awakening now that uh, that is way overdue. You know, a lot of people um, have been under the impression that we're living in a post-racial society or, or didn't even believe in racism anymore or thought, you know, racism is dead. Um, there are people who want to say that they don't see color, which isn't productive. Um, no. You know, and it's, it's not, not fair. It's, not, it's fair. not fair. It's not fair. It's not productive. And when you argue that you don't see color or don't see these issues, you put African Americans' lives in jeopardy. Correct. Um, and because because it's not safe in a lot of situations, and so it's troubling. And knowing what happened to Alonzo, and knowing what took place there, um, I was not willing to take any chances that this was some quote unquote accident. When you grow up African American in this country. You understand that you have to take certain precautions um, around situations like this because, you know, something as simple as going for a jog like a Mott Arbery can land you, you know, getting chased down and gunned down in the street like an animal. And right. so these are the things um, that we live with. And, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, anxiety and temperature does play a role. Um, and so I felt that and I could feel that energy. 
while I was there. And, it, and it's very unsettling, um, mm. to say the least. So, But I knew that that was going to be an obstacle, and I also knew it was going to be a challenge, and I also knew that that's the energy the episode needed. And that's so, right. yeah, and so, I, you know, I try to channel that energy and that uncomfortability and that almost claustrophobia of the situation. You know, you're, you're, you're stuck, you're trapped, you have no, you're far from home, you have no ride, you have no assistance, you have no one to lean on. And so, you know, I really wanted that energy to come through in the episode. Um, you spend a lot of time in the episode with Alonzo's family, which as a viewer, I really appreciated. Maria Ramirez, Billy, Cindy, Demetria, Felicia, uh, his siblings, Edward, uh, his uncle, his best friend, Rodney. What was it like spending so much time with them? And why was it important for you to include all of them in the episode? Yeah, the family is, they've been dealing with this for 16 years. This is their son. This is their brother. This is their story. Um, and it's their tragedy. And so the family is incredibly important. You know, you have to have viewers emotionally connect with the subjects of what's going on. Um, that's part of the beauty and the magic of the show is, you know, we want you to connect with the family. We want you to feel what they are feeling, what they are experiencing. You know, they, they are grieving, they are mourning. This death has been devastating to their family. Um, I cannot imagine any family going through something like this. They took this up on their back. Billy, incredibly strong human being, um, was out there searching for his brother when authorities failed them. He had to stand there and see his brother's body. That is devastating. Sometimes I think about, you know, if he was, you know, being jumped or something, you know, he could have been calling out for me. You know, as well, you know, calling out for his big brother to come and help him. So I didn't get that opportunity. No family should have to go through that. No brother should have to experience that. And so the family is the centerpiece of the story. Um, they're the ones who, who need to tell the story. And they deserve this outlet um, to have this level of publicity and then have this level of exposure to what happened. Um gives them the best chance possible to get answers. No Ride Home is the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Marcus A. Clark is the director. This was a very, very difficult and very important episode, and I really am so glad to talk to you about it. Thank you so, so much. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Next up is a conversation I had with Jenny Popplewell, who directed the Netflix documentary American Murder, The Family Next Door. It's about the disappearance of a Colorado woman named Shanann Watts, her two young daughters, and a terrible unfolding of events as police discovered what happened to them. What's so groundbreaking about this film is that there are no interviews, no narration. The entire story is told through firsthand raw footage, much of it filmed by Shanann herself. I was in a place for a long time where I felt very insecure. I was married, went through a really awful divorce, and that relationship really took a lot from me. It took my confidence. It took everything. It literally took everything. But I'm not a quitter. And my goal was to buy a house. My family doesn't come from money. We always worked hard for what we had. And so I worked and worked and worked and worked. And I was 25 years old when I built my first house. And that was the 
biggest accomplishment I felt I've ever done because I did it by myself. I did it by working my tail off. <laughs> Then 10 years ago, I went from being super energetic, super happy. I started losing a lot of my hair. I felt like I had the flu all the time. I felt miserable. And then I was diagnosed with lupus, which is an autoimmune disease. I went through one of the darkest times of my life. And then I met Chris. And I couldn't have asked God for a better man. Jenny Popplewell made it very clear in our conversation that beyond the retelling of this tragedy, the Shanann Watts story brings sexism and victim blaming into focus. I asked Jenny how she first came across the story and why she felt so compelled to tell it. I came across this crime in a British newspaper and immediately went to her social media because it mentioned that she had an online profile and there was just something about her first few videos that I came across where she was doing testimonials, you know, she's talking to the camera, um, she's talking about her life that I was immediately taken by her and you felt like you knew her and I think that's what a lot of people have said when they've watched these videos, they feel like they know Shanann, they know the girls. Later, I found YouTube clips, obviously, and found the police footage and body cams um, and started to realise just how much was captured on camera and started to discuss it with friends here saying it felt like there was enough content um, to do an archive only documentary about her story. So I just felt that this was going to be a unique situation and, and a, a documentary of our time. You couldn't, you couldn't make this a few years ago. This is just, you know, our lives are on camera and documented in a way digitally that they haven't been before. After Shanann's disappearance, I mean, her family was really harassed and her reputation was really kind of made fodder for a lot of really irresponsible and kind of ugly social media debate and criticism. Can you just talk a little bit about that aspect of the story? I mean, they, um, you know, there there was this sort of this idea out there that somehow she was, you know, demanding. She was bossy. She was difficult. You know, no wonder, you know, something would have happened to her. You know, Chris was pushed. Can you just talk about that? Because I found that part extremely painful uh, to think about, to watch, and also to watch her family's reaction to it. Yeah, I think um, Shanann's story is representative of any woman um, who's mm. a victim of violent crime. So uh, we're just used to seeing this. You know, if a um, female victim has been trafficked or abused or raped, that people start to question her actions. How much was she drinking? What was she wearing? How did she act to her perpetrator that triggered him to act this way? And I just think it's, you know, the misogyny and the fabric of our society that we have to be challenging and not looking and dissecting women's behaviour to see about how they might bring on an attack on themselves. Um, and I saw that in I, I knew as a surface level I knew that that was going on I could see it very early on in comments as soon as you're looking at videos that people were saying well she was bossy or um, you know other derogatory comments about her as if they were somehow going to solve the crime and the reason that this wonderful man snapped and I just felt that I, I couldn't believe that, it, that he's committed the most appalling horrendous there is no word to explain what he's done yeah um and it has you know there's so much evidence he's admitted it um all she's done is love her family and yet still we're looking to her to see you know, to, for answers as to how why did she cause this why what did she do to cause this man mm. to snap i just have to wonder if she even wanted bella and cc her parent raising ideas were disturbing the one that i would label the narcissist is Shanann. I think she drove him. 
to lose his shit. Oh my god, she could not drive him to lose his shit. She did. She did. She did, Laura. She did. She drove him insane. Come on, what? why are you victim blaming? She was a bitch. And I, I was quite uncomfortable with just how much reporting there has been on what a great guy Chris was. Mm. And you just don't see that. If a, um, There's been cases where women have, you know, killed their children. I think you'd be very hard pushed to find a report about how kind she was or, you know, what a lovely mother she'd been previously right, and always right. cooked at bake sales and, you know, helped out in the church. They, they wouldn't, she would have, no character uh, positivity would have been accredited to her after such an incident and it and it isn't and the same for her husband. There was a, I think her name's Susan Smith, Sarah Smith? Yes, Susan um, Smith. Yeah, Susan Smith um, killed her two children. Uh, she was having an affair mm. and she went on on national television and asked for their safe return. And when it was discovered that it was in fact her who'd killed her children and she was having an affair and her husband was obviously left devastated, there's no reports about what a wonderful woman she is mm. or what a kind mother she's been or what did this husband do to drive her into the arms of another man or what he must have done something to cause her to snap you know he is reported as a grieving husband and she is reported as a woman who has committed a callous act and that's it mm. and that that same reporting standard has not been um given to the Watts murders and I just think that's that is happening all the time and mm. that's what Shannon's story represents when he blames her. Um, obviously, that's a technique that the that they do to get that confession, and that he he just follows. He walks blindly into that when they offer maybe Shannon did something, but actually, it's kind of a metaphor for what we do anyway in society. Whether he'd done that or not, eventually, people would have started to do the same. Jenny, your film American Murder is a true crime story at its heart. It is made in a very different way, as we talked about, than other true crime documentaries like it. What are you hoping that viewers will take away after watching this film? I think personally, I would like people to know that we've refocused the narrative, that we have made sure that people are focusing on who the perpetrator is, who lied from the beginning and who's the innocent party. All she ever did was love this man and love her family. That's the story. It's a very simple story in that respect. Um, and that unfortunately, over time with retelling and, you know, uh, people hypothesizing and looking into her videos to try to find motive with her behavior, it started to move further and further away from that that simple truth. Mm. Um, so that's what I wanted the film to do, to be like the defining story. This is the defining film on the Watts murders. And it's that we remind everybody who the monster is and who only loved their family. I can say at the end of the day, I've done everything in my heart and my soul that I could do to make my family's life better and to give my family what they deserve. We're not promised tomorrow, you know? We're not promised anything. Oh my goodness. But to be able to enjoy our children and every crazy moment. I love you, girl. I got the baby a hug. You wanna give the baby a hug? It can be super crazy, but I love them. Well, Jenny, I think you achieved that. I really, really enjoyed the film. Thank you so much for talking with me about it. Thanks for having me. Trial 4 was the final docuseries covered by You Can't Make This Up in 2020. It's a sweeping, timely masterpiece of a documentary that spotlights police corruption, wrongful conviction, and their human toll. 
The series introduces us to Boston native Sean Ellis, who was put on trial three separate times before being found guilty of murdering a police officer. 22 years later, a judge ruled that Sean was never given a fair trial. He was released on bail to await his fourth trial that would determine whether he would be proven innocent or sent back to prison for the rest of his life. No one is speaking about the fact that wrongful convictions are epidemic. No one's speaking about the fact that wrongful conviction is a human catastrophe. It's like it's, you're dealing with somebody's, somebody's life. There is that like anger. Part of what I've been doing since I've been home, like dealing with like social justice reform, criminal justice reform, like that's where I take it out at. Because like what happened to Sean Ellis isn't just about Sean Ellis. Like it, it, it happens on a daily basis, just, just throughout, throughout this country and probably all, all over the world. Um, so that's, like, for me, that's, that, that's where my aggression comes, comes, comes out at. That's where my anger comes, comes out at. Our guest for Trial 4 was the series director, Remy Burkell, who, like all the directors I spoke to, felt a really genuine connection with the subjects he spent so much time with or reflecting on. The part of my conversation with Remy that I want to leave you with is about his relationship with Sean. Remy reminds viewers like you that you are more than just a passive observer of stories. There are tangible choices that you can make to influence how the justice system functions. More than anything, Remy puts an emphasis on hope, which is something that we could all use so much more of. I began by asking him how he thought viewers would react to Sean's portrayal in the series. When you meet first meet Sean, you're wondering... How is he going to come off? How are people going to read him? Mm. Because he sometimes has a shyness to him. There's a slight stutter to him. Um, he's not used to cameras around him. He's not used to the attention. You wonder at the beginning, and then little by little, we grew on him, I think, and he grew on us. I mean, I'm very, very attached to Sean. I'm very protective of Sean, and I talk a lot with Sean. We, 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 talk, we were talking, we were texting last night. We talk on a regular basis. He's, he's become a friend and I mean, I'm, I feel humble and, and, and honored to have him as a friend because he is such a great person. I'm curious how Sean's doing. What was his reaction to the documentary and how is he acclimating to life as a free man? Sean is doing, um, he's doing very, very well. He's, he's, build, he's been building his life. I mean, that was one of the things that was so amazing to follow was, was how he's rebuilding his life. He's out there working. He's out there. He was working actually like, like a month after he got out. He started working immediately, even though he had that, you know, the the fact that he would the fourth trial could have put him back in jail. Um, he was building that house where his family. He was worried, you know, fixing up the house where his family was living. He's working now at community servings and and, and is moving up the ladder and has got a great job. Actually studying at Taft University, and so he's doing very well. And um, the series. It was an emotional journey for him to relive it again, but I think it's to him it's some it's a form of therapy. He's never really trusted a therapist, but he's always said that this our discussions and our talking because he also became very close to the crew, which was a a French crew, um, which come over and film with him, and he became very close to them. And and after filming, there was always discussions, and and how he was living things, and made we made him relive some of the darker, a lot of the darker moments. And he said it was kind of like therapy to him. And hmm. um, and that was very touching and moving to me because it's like, yeah, if I can help you in any way, I'm, I'm on board, you know. And, and we talked a lot. We talk a lot over the phone, how he's doing, how his life is evolving. 
again, you have to imagine that he was 22 years in prison in some of the most formative years. Um, he didn't build a family back then. He didn't build a career. And he didn't, he was with men 24-7 for 22 years only with men. So when he got out, he was living with his, under the same roof as his mother, his girlfriend at the time, his sister, and his niece. Uh, so it was kind of, and his niece had a daughter. So it was like, <laughs> there's no men in that environment. And Sean's like, he didn't comprehend that and also how, how women function. So we discussed that. Um, and he was like, he didn't, when he came out, he didn't know how to use a smartphone, didn't know how to use a computer, didn't know how to balance a checkbook. So all those things were a learning process that his, his, the people who supported him, help him with. So you, you, you've got a guy who's 40, 42, 43 years old coming out of there. And he was just a, a novice in everything. And, but a learner, a very fast learner, because I mean, he's better than I am on social media now, better than I could and better than any, most people around him on Excel charts and all that. So he, he learned very quickly, but he's still going to be healing for the rest of his life. You can't just take 22 years of your life in prison and forget about it. There's a sound. He said, you know, he'll, he, he said on the street, in the street, suddenly he'll a siren, he'll hear something, he'll hear a noise that'll re remind him of prison, he'll, and he'll for, you know, for a while, he'll be back inside. And that will never leave him, he thinks. Remy, this documentary is going to be watched by millions of people. What are you hoping that the viewer will take away from it? Like, how might it change them having watched it? First and foremost, that they can make a difference. That through voting, in Boston, they voted in Rachel Rollins. Through voting recently in the presidential elections, they can make a change. They can bring a change. And their voices from whatever walk of life you, you, you're coming from, even if you're incarcerated for, misdeme you know, for, for certain crimes, you can vote. And people think, oh, it's not worth voting. It never changes anything. Well, that's not true. In this case, in Sean's case, it did change something. Rachel Rollins being voted in changed the fact that they, they dismissed the case, not in a very you know, in the, as in the way that you see in the series, um, which is very in, disingenuous to Sean and what he went through. Um, but you can make a change. That That's one of the things. The other thing is that there is, people should get out there and speak. If they are witnesses of unfair um, police practices, they should get out there and say it and state it and get it out there. Um, that there are many other people like Sean who are in prison um, wrongfully convicted. So people should get out there and voice that. It should be heard. And and racism. This is this is also systemic racism. And it, it shouldn't be happening. Um, in Sean's case, it is all over the place. Boston was considered still up until, you know, recently when I was, when we were filming there, there was a huge, there was spot the spotlight team, the most incredible, the Boston Globe spotlight team put out a whole, series in 2000, beginning 2019, I believe, no, 2018, about racism. And you should look at that. It's, it's, it's just the racism in Boston, and it is still there. And it's still, you know, a fact that it's very prevalent in, in the United States. And not only, I mean, I live in France now, and it's in France as well, that there is systemic racism. And um, it is, th terrible things are happening because of that. And the viewer to me should take that and go on social media and denounce those kind of things and, and to do it. And it does make a difference. So long-winded answer. Sorry. But yeah, that's what I want them to come away <laughs> with. I'm a talker. I'm sorry. 
Oh, Remy, when it comes to this documentary, I could talk about it for weeks. I don't use this word lightly, but um, Trial 4, it's a masterpiece. I hope everyone watches it. Thank you so much for talking to me about what it was like to make it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to all of the producers and directors who took the time to speak with me this past year. It was such a pleasure. And this is it for our 2020 recap. To all of our loyal followers and listeners like you, we know that 2020 has been really hard. But the one thing the crew here at You Can't Make This Up is so grateful for is that you chose to spend some of your quarantine time with us. Coming up in 2021 is our fourth season of You Can't Make This Up. We have many more engaging true crime and criminal justice stories coming your way. We'll continue to share important conversations with groundbreaking filmmakers who take us around the globe. So stick with us. And if you like listening to You Can't Make This Up, please rate, review, and share the podcast with friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to stay tuned for our next episode on crack, cocaine, corruption, and conspiracy. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.